Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When a mother and her young daughter are found slaughtered in their Massachusetts home, there were bloody handprints and feet prints on the wall, and she definitely gave him a fight. Residents are bewildered as to who could do such a thing. I was shocked to think a homicide, but had no idea who. With a community clutched by fear, police have to work fast to catch a killer. When you have no witnesses, it's a difficult task. We had a lot of legwork to do. But when an undeveloped roll of film points police in the right direction, we didn't feel that he was a viable suspect until we started to do some background on him. A killer is exposed. We knew that that is the type of person that would have committed a horrific crime like this. How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? New England is chock full of old historic towns. But few can rival the quaint community of Woburn, Massachusetts, just a stone's throw away from bustling Boston. The nearly 400-year-old hamlet has a history as rich as cream pie. Now this is a very family-oriented town. An old joke is that people that grew up in Woburn stay in Woburn. And there's a reason folks never drift too far, and it's not because of the chowder. It's a pretty close community. It's a very blue-collar community that sticks together. But few are happier to call Woburn home than 34-year-old Joanne Presti. The single mother of three has been a favorite on this quiet stretch of Totman Drive for years. And her mother, Annette Presti, knows Joanne can always be found playing with the kids or chatting up a neighbor. Joanne wanted to live in a safe place. Totem was a cul-de-sac. And it was all families with children. She was like the Pied Piper of the neighborhood. Always the children around Joanne. With three children, each from a different father, Joanne has got a lot on her plate. 
But if 12-year-old Alyssa, 10-year-old Jordan, and 2-year-old baby Sam are a handful, this supermom can handle it. I remember my Joanne saying to me, Mom, my children, and my life. And she was getting support from the fathers, so she decided she'd rather stay home with them. With a plate almost as full as Joanne's, Alyssa, the oldest of the Presti kids, is the rising star. A straight-A student and a jack-of-all-trades. Alyssa was the light of my life. She loved cheerleading. She loved to dance and sing. Anytime I would call Joanne, I would hear Alyssa singing in the background. Alyssa's the life of the party and is never without a big, toothy grin on her face. She was quiet, always had a bright smile, always happy, and she was a joy. The Prestes truly are one big, happy family. That is, until January of 2004, when a bitter cold blows into Woburn, and the Presti family tree loses two of its sturdiest branches. On January 7th, Annette Presti's day is just like any other, one by one checking off her to-dos. But just as she's getting busy with daily chores, Annette gets a call from Joanne's neighbor. I got a call on a Monday, and it was from a friend of Joanne's. Told me she had not been hearing from Joanne for three days. And a red flag went up for me. And not only that, but her window shades haven't budged an inch. And that just doesn't sound like Joanne. I knew that my Joanne, the minute she gets up, lets the sunshine in. Never would her shades be down in the afternoon. I just got this horrible, horrible feeling that something was wrong. So I said to my husband, we need to get down there. We need to check the kids. With a pit in her stomach, Annette and her husband Peter head to Joanne's. They live just nine miles away in nearby Billerica. But this time, the short trek feels longer than the Boston Marathon. When they arrive, they open the door to a scene no parent should ever have to witness. I found my Joanne on a couch. And we were in total shock. Lying face down on the living room sofa, Joanne's lower body is nude and Annette can see a small pool of blood under her head. I told my husband, you need to touch her. She may still be alive. My husband touched her and said, no, she's dead. Then I started screaming, where are the kids? Where are the children? Peter runs upstairs and finds baby Sam in his crib. The toddler is dehydrated, starving, and his diaper heavily soiled. It's obvious he hasn't been attended to in days. Annette knows 10-year-old Jordan is spending the weekend with his dad. So that leaves just one of the Prestes unaccounted for. Where's Alyssa? I kept screaming, I want to see Alyssa. And then finally, he told me, Annette, you cannot go and see Alyssa. She's dead. And I just lost it. I lost it. Flustered and shocked, Peter takes baby Sam outside while Annette calls 911. <laughs> Lieutenant John O'Neill of the Woburn Police Department isn't one to sit behind a desk and push paper. 
767 at control. Any more info? And on the afternoon of January 7th, there's nothing humdrum about his job when a frantic 911 call comes into the station from a distraught Annette Presti. Things race through your mind could hear a child screaming in the background. So we didn't know what was going on. When Lieutenant O'Neill arrives at the scene, he's not sure what to expect. But after just one step into Joanne Presti's home, he knows it's not good. She had obviously uh, been deceased, but you're looking for what caused her demise. You're looking for a knife, a firearm, ligature marks, something like that. But it didn't appear to be any struggle. With a small pool of blood, but no obvious signs of a skirmish, Lieutenant O'Neill isn't quite sure what he's got until he makes his way up to Alyssa's bedroom. It's one of the most gruesome scenes this seasoned lieutenant has ever laid eyes on. Large, large amount of blood. There were bloody handprints and feet prints on the wall. It was very chaotic. It looked like two people really went at it. It's an unshakable sight, but this veteran cop has to buckle down and get to work securing the scene. With Annette and Peter Presti on the way to the hospital with baby Sam, Lieutenant O'Neill knows he's got to take this case right to the top. And Massachusetts State Trooper Gina Joyce is just the woman for the job. She's been doing this gig for over 17 years, and she's just about seen it all. But no amount of training can prepare her for what she's about to face on Totman Drive. Personally, I related to this case because Joanne is a mother and I'm a mother. It was hard to believe that a human being is capable of such a horrific crime. Well, this horrific crime is about to get even worse than it seems. When they take a closer look at Joanne's body, they find more than just the cause of death. Once the body of Joanne was moved, it was noticed that she had suffered knife wounds to the left part of her neck. She did have duct tape and a piece of rope around one wrist. For detectives, it's easy to see why there are no obvious signs of a struggle. With Joanne's wrists taped and bound during the attack, she stood little chance of fighting back. And that's not all she endured. Due to the fact that she was partially unclothed in her positioning of the body, we believe that a sexual assault took place. There's a lot to take in. But when Joyce turns her attention to the staircase, she's reminded that her job is just getting started. <laughs> Judging from the state of the room, little Alyssa put up one hell of a fight. The room was in total disarray. The bed was pulled away from the wall, was at an angle in the center of the room. Some of the drawers were partially pulled out of bureaus. It appeared that Alyssa had been pursued into the room and that she had possibly ran behind the bed to hide from her attacker. But despite her strongest efforts, she didn't escape. Alyssa was found on the floor between the bed and the wall. She was lying in a large pool of blood and her wound to her neck was clearly visible. A clean and precise wound that cuts deeply from one side of her neck to the other. As a mother herself, it's a tough sight for Trooper Joyce to see. This crime scene was exceptionally brutal. It was clear that this young girl had to encounter something horrific prior to her death. 
Even though the murder weapon is nowhere to be found, Trooper Joyce does find one thing that strikes her as strange. Joanne was very careful as to locking the door, but we were told by Mr. and Mrs. Presty that the door was closed but unlocked. There was no forced entry. So how did this brutal killer get inside? Is it possible that the murders of a mother and child were committed by someone close to the family? She knew her assailant. Someone had knocked on her door, and she let this person in. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Woburn, Massachusetts is a family kind of place, where Sunday mornings are spent in church pews and afternoons are spent in the bleachers. But the day after the bodies of Joanne and Alyssa Presti are discovered in their Totman Drive home, the once cozy neighborhood has turned into a crime scene. There was a lot of crying and fear. These people were fantastic people. I couldn't believe this thing had happened. Lifelong Woburn resident Eddie App grew up on this street and knows the ins and outs of just about everyone's business. And he's always enjoyed having a neighbor like Joanne Presti. Many days I would come home in the evening and Joanne would be sitting right in the curb talking to Alyssa and her other children and the neighborhood kids. All the kids loved uh, Joanne. Once bustling with youngsters, Totman Drive is now lined with black and whites. 
and Trooper Gina Joyce of the Massachusetts State Police is hoping that going door to door in this chummy neighborhood might shake something loose. It's normal procedure to speak with anyone that would know some of Joanne's habits. At what time does she generally go to bed? Um, does she lock the doors? Just to learn their everyday habits so we could possibly place the time of death. With rubberneckers and gossips all up and down this street, Joyce is going to need an extra set of ears to listen in on what these neighbors have to say. And Woburn Police Department's top dog is up to the challenge. With over 30 years under his belt, Detective Mike Pandolf has been around the block a few times. So he hits the streets to pinpoint exactly when things went so wrong in the Presti home. Well, we really didn't know much when we first started, so we had to go out and talk to as many people as we possibly could. But no one has heard a peep from Joanne since Sunday evening, three days earlier, when she said a friendly hello to a neighbor. We also knew through investigation, talking to the school, that Alyssa was not in school Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. So we believe that sometime Sunday night, early Monday morning was probably when they were murdered. While police know the three fathers of Joanne's kids are number one persons of interest, there's a few folks right next door that might be able to help them narrow down who to talk to first. Joanne's neighbor and landlord, Samir Mandar. With only a thin wall separating the duplex apartments, police are holding out hope that Mandar or his family heard something suspicious. Maybe you heard a struggle, maybe you heard some screams. So that was always in the back of our mind when we were interviewing the landlord. But he confirmed he didn't hear anything. Which is something that police find hard to believe. According to Mandar, he and his wife spent the entire evening at home watching television. So how did they not hear a single squeal or scurry? It was hard to believe that the family didn't hear anything. It was clear that there was a struggle. It seems instead of Mandar helping to point a finger at one of the fathers, he may have just helped point a finger at himself. Police search the home for anything that may tie Mandar to the murders, and they soon come across an interesting find. We did secure a number of rolls of duct tape, similar with the duct tape used to bind Joanne's wrists. But when the duct tape from Mandar's home isn't a match to the duct tape found on Joanne, police realize they might just be barking up the wrong tree. Only there's a glitch in Mandar's story. When a check of his phone records reveal a late-night conversation between him and Joanne not long before her murder. The last person Joanne Presti spoke with was her landlord, was approximately 10 o'clock um, that night, Sunday night. So we were interested in the contents of that conversation. Could an argument between owner and renter have led to murder? According to Mandar, absolutely not. The landlord said she had called because the bathtub sink was clogged and if he could repair it. There's no way of knowing for sure what was said that night. And so far, everything else police have on Mandar isn't amounting to much more than a hill of beans. The landlord allowed us to search all areas of the home. He did consent to providing a DNA sample. He provided fingerprints. 
He was very much cooperative with our investigation. But just when it looks like their strongest lead is drying up, the ME calls with the autopsy results and gives detectives a break in their case. It was determined that Joanne had suffered from blunt trauma to the head and that the cause of death was stab wounds to the left side of the neck. Seven stab wounds, to be exact. It certainly looks like a classic case of overkill. But 12-year-old Alyssa suffered a much more precise attack. Alyssa had sustained her throat being slit almost from one side to the other. It was a vicious, vicious cut. She also had some trauma to her mouth area. She had braces, her braces had been damaged. That would indicate that somebody punched her in the face, punched her hard. Judging from the defensive wounds found on Alyssa, detectives can only hope she got in a few slugs as well. And if she did, she might just give them what they really need, DNA. Luckily, investigators are about to get a double helping of it. DNA evidence was recovered from both victims. It was recovered through the sexual assault kit taken from the body of Joanne Presti and also from underneath the fingernails of Alyssa Presti. We had hopes that could possibly lead us to whoever did this. And just like that, the Presti case is hotter than a bucket of New England steamers, ready to pull, dip, and devour. Detectives submit a DNA sample from their favorite suspect, Samir Mandar. Only the results are not what they want to hear. His DNA did not match that found under the fingernails of Alyssa or the DNA that was located on the body of Joanne. They may be down a suspect, but the autopsy report might just help point them in the right direction. Having been knocked around, bound, raped, and stabbed, Joanne's attack was vicious and deliberate. But judging from the disarray of Alyssa's bedroom, the frantic blood spatter, and the one precise wound that killed her, it all adds up to one thing. Alyssa was an unfortunate bystander, and it had appeared that Joanne was the focus of the attack. But who could have such disregard for the life of an innocent child and mother? Police think they might have an idea. When they learn this isn't the first time Joanne Presti has been the focus of a malicious attack. Did an old flame with a history of violence finally go too far? During the early weeks of January, the chatter in the cafeteria of Daniel Joyce Middle School usually circles around who got what for Christmas. But this year, there's a cloud hanging over the lunch table because just a few days earlier, one of their own, 12-year-old Alyssa Presti and her mother, Joanne, were murdered in their quiet Woburn home. Her seat next to me was gone. Everybody could feel that she wasn't there. The school was a lot less happy than it usually was. Everyone is taking the loss of the Prestes hard. But for Alyssa's best friend, Kelly Lorick, the empty seat in the classroom is even harder to see. She was just always laughing, had such an upbeat personality. She was just always there for me and I was always there for her. It's kind of that type of friendship you never want to lose. So who would want to harm such a vibrant young girl and her loving mother? Lead detectives Mike Pandolf and Gina Joyce think they might have a pretty good idea. 
the first persons of interest would be either a boyfriend, husband, a father. So that was something that we definitely explored right off the bat. With three exes to sort out, police have a pretty good idea where to start. When Joanne's family and friends tell them that baby Sam's dad, Terry Womack, is a likely suspect indeed. They certainly remember the bruises decorating Joanne's arms on more than one occasion. And Joanne's mom, Annette Presty, couldn't help but be relieved when Womack cut and run just two years earlier. He ended up being abusive. And she never told us because she knew her dad would be down there in a heartbeat. I found out after they separated. They had their son, and then he left. When Joanne filed divorce papers, Terry began making threats that he would harm her and kidnap baby Sam. Far too familiar with his violent nature, Joanne took the threat seriously and decided to take matters into her own hands. We had found that there was a restraining order placed against the father of her youngest child. That certainly was of interest to us. We knew that that is the type of person that we believed would have committed this type of crime. Womack's history of violence is a huge red flag for detectives. So it's not too hard to believe that perhaps he went too far this time. When investigators locate Womack at his home in Newcastle, Delaware, over 350 miles away from Woburn, his reaction to the murders is more apathy than grief. His demeanor definitely piqued our interest. We thought that he might be a viable suspect. Is Terry Womack's indifference a sign of guilt or just another indicator of the heartless ex they had heard so much about? It's a question weighing on Trooper Joyce's mind. Only when she asks this Delaware resident if he's crossed the state line recently, his alibi is pretty solid. He stated he had gone to a store in the area within his state the night of this double homicide. When Womack shows them a receipt for a speaker system bought that night, it's tough to make a case against him. The timing of his alibis would make it impossible for him to return to Massachusetts. He had been last seen in his home state that Sunday the 4th, and then the receipt placed him in the area within his state uh, that early Monday morning. When Womack's DNA is not a match for the evidence found on either of the victims, investigators find themselves back at square one. It's frustrating, to say the least. But Gina Joyce isn't one to give up. And the stress is settling heavily on this trooper's shoulders as she digs deeper into the lives of Joanne and Alyssa. Because what investigators find out next is a real slap shot. We learned that Alyssa's father was a professional hockey player. That came as quite a surprise to us. In a place where people take their hockey pretty seriously, it's hard to believe that detectives' next suspect is beloved sports icon and retired pro hockey champ Brent Casey. Beloved to everyone but the Presties, that is. After a brief fling with Casey, Joanne became pregnant with Alyssa. And this left-winger didn't exactly wait around for the buzzer. Alyssa never thought about her father. She didn't even know what he looked like. Never part of her life. And it seems the apparently well-off local celebrity failed to look after Joanne and Alyssa financially as well. There was an issue of child support that was pending in the court, which could have been a possible motive. 
a motive worth $25,000 to be exact. Fact is, this Ice King blew through his hockey stash on some bad business deals and left Alyssa and Joanne in the cold. And that's all detectives need to know before they bring this guy in for a talking to. Only, his reaction is a surprising one. Yeah, I'm sure they will. He was very upset. He was shocked. At that point, he appeared to be believable. But what Casey says next raises a few eyebrows. He was with friends drinking at a bar, which was not too far from Joanne's house. With a possible killer just around the corner from the Prestes' home the night of the murders, investigators have to wonder. Was this washed-up sports star making an easy fix to a very expensive problem? For Detective Pandolf, it's easy to see. Not only does Casey have the motive, but he also had the opportunity. Proximity to the crime is definitely a factor that uh, we would look at hard. He was a viable suspect. Perhaps Brent Casey slipped out of the busy bar unnoticed and made his way to the Presti home. But when police question his drinking buddies that night, they insist that Casey never left his bar stool. Well, a bunch of guys sitting around throwing him back isn't exactly the most reliable crowd. But the proof is in the DNA, so detectives go straight to the source. He also consented to providing a DNA sample and fingerprints. He was fully cooperative. And Casey's DNA is not a match. With two of Joanne's three exes eliminated as suspects, there's one more old flame left to check out. But when a search of the Presti home computer steers the investigation in a whole new direction, detectives wonder, could little Alyssa have been this killer's primary target? The frigid New England winter and the shock of a double homicide have frozen the once peaceful town of Woburn to its core. But a week after the murders of Joanne and Alyssa Presti, residents are hot with cabin fever, trapped in their homes while a killer runs free. And Joanne's neighbor, Eddie App, is getting antsy as well. People were afraid. If it could happen in this neighborhood, it could happen in any neighborhood. Neighbors were very shook up. And detectives know the only way to put their minds at ease is to catch the killer. So police turn up the heat on the Presti case and their attention to the only baby daddy left to check out, the father of 10-year-old Jordan, Alan Kassler. They dated, they, you know, lived together for a while. They had their son. He was a wonderful dad, and he still is. He still is. But Jordan had been spending the weekend with him during the murders, making Alan's son the only of Joanne's children not in the Presti home that fateful night. So was this a coincidence? or well-orchestrated plot. Detective Mike Pandolf is interested to learn that Jordan's living arrangements had been quite a sore spot between Joanne and Alan. I know that there were some problems with him as far as where he was gonna reside, with his father or with Joanne. While Joanne and Alan never married, it's no secret that when it comes to custody battles between exes, things can get pretty nasty. So detectives don't waste any time checking Kassler's DNA against the killers. And when it isn't a match, it's just one more blow to a tiring group of investigators. It does get frustrating that you develop a person that may have been in the relationship with Joanne, but it also is helpful that we eliminate them as a possible suspect. 
So it is kind of like one step forward, two steps back. Well, now seems like a good time for a dosy do in a new direction. When a check of the Presti home computer reveals someone had been chatting online the night of the murders, police wonder if an unsavory cyber character is to blame. Ever the social butterfly, could Alyssa have become the target of an online predator? Someone that might know is Alyssa's best friend, Kelly Lorick. Of course, we gossiped about who we had crushes on and stuff like that, but we didn't really worry about boyfriends. I would have never known if anything was going on. She just always had a smile. Well, there's nothing to smile about when trooper Gina Joyce learns that it wasn't Alyssa that had been chatting the night of the murders, but rather her mom, Joanne, with an unlikely person. Joanne was communicating via computer with a boy who resided in the neighborhood. And we were told by friends of the family that that was an unusual thing. Unusual indeed. Especially when police learned that Joanne's chat buddy was a 16-year-old neighborhood boy. But according to Joanne's neighbor, Eddie App, there's nothing strange about it. Joanne had always been a close friend and confidant to the neighborhood kids. Joanne, she was very good with the kids. The kids felt easy to talk to her, and, and she always tried to convey to all the kids to do the right thing and listen to their parents. Maybe the teenage boy was simply looking for a little adult guidance. But what if something was said during that last conversation that drove a young man to murder? Well, detectives aren't so sure. He admitted to having spoken with Joanne via computer regarding Alyssa that evening. When police learned that the discussion was merely an innocent chat about Alyssa's classes starting back after winter break, they chalked the lead up as a loss. We believed there was nothing to be suspicious of at that time. It was immediately dismissed. After a week of investigating those closest to the Presties, one by one, they are all checked off the suspect list. At this point, things are looking pretty bleak for investigators. So they cast their net wide and hope to bring in a few clams. We looked into violent offenders that were recently released to those on parole. We also checked the sex offender registry list to review areas where sex offenders either resided or worked in that area due to the nature of this crime. We interviewed them, asked them to submit to a DNA swab, which they did, and uh, those people were also eliminated. Like all the others before them, the leads go nowhere. It was extremely frustrating to work this particular case for the fact that we did have a number of possible investigative leads, yet they weren't taking us to anything definitive. With things moving forward at a snail's pace, it's a frustrating road of constant dead ends. And for Detective Pandolf, the pressure to solve the worst double homicide of his career is taking its toll. You know, cases like this, are, they're really taxing on you, mentally, physically, emotionally. Taxing, to say the least. But it's a good thing Pandolf knows how to take things slow and have a little patience. Beneath his hardened, blue-blooded exterior lies a lily-white gardener. Police work, um, sometimes the results aren't, aren't always positive. But gardening is go at your own pace, flowers grow at their own pace, and you can enjoy the end results. 
It's always a positive thing. Well, that may not be true for the Presti case. It's shaping up to be one of the toughest this New England town has ever seen. And police don't know what to make of it. So they decide to return to what they do know, the evidence. During a search of the Presti home early in the investigation, police had collected several pieces of evidence on the off chance that something might give them a clue. Well, when they revisit what they found, investigators hit pay dirt. While executing the search warrant of Joanne's home, we did locate rolls of film, and we developed the film. And in reviewing the photographs, we came across a photograph of a child's birthday party. A birthday party that Joanne Presti attended. And the photo reveals that an unknown man was there as well. At that point, we didn't feel that he was a viable suspect. That was just another person that, that we had to eliminate. But when police learn the identity of this mystery man, their investigation cracks wide open. We discovered that he was a level three sex offender. It definitely piqued our interest. A little over a week after the brutal murders of Joanne Presti and 12-year-old Alyssa Presti, detectives have a white-hot lead. But for the people of Woburn, good news can't come soon enough. It makes you think when that stuff happens, it could happen anywhere, but it didn't, it happened here. It's terrible. While police thought everyone who knew the Prestis had been questioned and cleared, apparently they missed someone. A man in a photo at a birthday party that, according to friends and family, Joanne also attended. When Trooper Joyce and Woburn detectives take a closer look at the picture, one sharp-eyed investigator immediately recognizes the man. A detective from the Woburn Police Department viewed this particular photograph and was able to identify the person in the background as Michael Bazanowitz, someone who he had arrested previously and he was a level three sex offender. And Detective Pandolf is quick to note that only the worst kind of offenders are branded level three. He was convicted of eight counts of rape of a child had committed sexual acts, deviant sexual acts in the past, and the crimes committed against Joanne would fit his prior behavior. But police searched the sex offender registry in Woburn earlier in the investigation. So how did Michael Bazanowitz elude their radar? We learned that Michael Bazanowitz did live in another town in Lowell. So he did not come up on the sex offender registry in Woburn. Bazanowitz may have lived in another town, but residents of Totman Drive are quick to tell investigators that he was no stranger to the cozy cul-de-sac. In fact, he was dating and had a child with a close friend and neighbor of Joanne's. Michael Bazanowitz had spent a significant amount of time in that neighborhood, that he, in fact, would stay over, if not reside with, his girlfriend. With a convicted sex offender dating Joanne Presti's neighbor and close friend, it's not hard for detectives to put the puzzle pieces together. And when they talk to his girlfriend, they get some interesting insight about the night of the murders. Last time she had talked to him was, was late night, Sunday night, like around 11, 11.30. She thought he had been drinking. Perhaps a belligerent and angry Bazanowitz wandered over to Totman Drive, looking to take his rage out on someone. 
But why Joanne? At the time that Joanne became closer friends with his girlfriend was the same time that the girlfriend started pulling away from Michael Bazanowitz. They have been arguing on and off for weeks. Their relationship was very poor, and we believe that he felt, in fact, threatened by her close friendship with Joanne, and that this could have possibly been one of his motives. With the suspicion growing against Bazanowitz, investigators decide it's time to have a chat with their newest suspect. So they drop by his Lowell home unannounced. And it doesn't take long before they realize they just might be sitting face to face with a killer. As we spoke to him, I watched him light the cigarette and, and he was shaking. His demeanor kind of piqued our interest. When detectives confront him about his relationship with Joanne or Alyssa Presti, Bazanowitz starts blowing smoke, and it's not from his cigarette either. We asked him about his presence ever in Joanne's apartment, and he told us that he didn't really know Joanne that well. It's tough to say who Bazanowitz thinks he's fooling, and Detective Pandolf's no dummy. He really distanced himself from Joanne, saying that he didn't really know her that well. But we also had evidence that that he did know her. I mean, we had him standing side by side with her in those pictures. And that's not all. When Detective Pandolf notices suspicious cuts on the suspect's hands, he makes a connection only a seasoned investigator could. I observed that he had scratches on his knuckles, and I knew Alyssa had received some trauma to her mouth and had damage to her braces, which would probably cause some type of cutting if somebody punched somebody in the face like that. But when police ask him about the cuts, the construction working Bazanowitz chalks it up to an injury on the job site. We, in fact, later learned that he usually wore gloves that would be covering his knuckles. It's just one more hole in his already leaky story. And as for an alibi, well, the one he gives doesn't exactly hold water. Michael Bazanowitz's alibi for the evening um, of the homicides was that he was home and he had spent the uh, majority of the night on the phone for a long period of time, up all night, fighting with his girlfriend. While his girlfriend does back up his story that they spoke late that night, there's one small problem. Phone records, uh, corroborated this, but that the last call had been completed before midnight. Giving Bazanowitz plenty of time to leave his home in Lowell and commit the murders in Woburn in the early morning hours of Monday, January 5th. We're starting to compile information about him. We thought that he might be a viable suspect. It looks like the evidence against Bazanowitz is stacking up higher than a grinder on Super Bowl Sunday. So detectives decide it's time to throw a Hail Mary. With a search warrant in hand, they take a DNA sample and execute a thorough search of Bazanowitz's truck and home. We found rope and duct tape, similar to the rope and duct tape that was used to bind Joanne Presti's wrists and ankles. Well, they won't need to waste time testing rope and tape, because when the DNA results come back, it's bad news for Bazanowitz. He's a match to Joanne and Alyssa's killer. For detectives, it's a victory, to say the least. It was a range of emotions. We were ecstatic that, that we now knew who did it. We were working 
day and night. We were frustrated, exhausted, and when this fact was revealed, uh, there was great relief amongst us that, in fact, um, you know, we were able to locate this perpetrator. Despite denying any involvement, the proof is in the DNA, and Michael Bazanowitz is charged with two counts of first-degree murder. And a well-executed trial delivers justice when he's convicted of double homicide and sentenced to two consecutive life terms without parole. To have a mother and daughter brutally murdered like that is pretty horrific. Michael Bozanowicz got exactly what he deserved. Joanne and Alyssa's loved ones couldn't agree more. People ask me about the death penalty. I personally feel it's too easy. For me, I like knowing that he is in prison and that he will live his natural life in prison. For me, that gives me justice. While Bozanowicz maintains his innocence, the evidence against him is overwhelming. And police now think they know what happened on that cold January night. Michael Bozanowicz had been drinking that evening. He had been arguing with his girlfriend. So I believe he decided he was going to come down and visit Joanne Presti. Blaming her for his own crumbling relationship, Bozanowicz heads over to the Presti house to confront Joanne and take matters into his own hands. He wanted to have sex with Joanne. She rebuffed his advances. Drunk and angry, he was not going to take no for an answer. He proceeded to tie her up and commit the sexual act. She had been hit with a blunt object and stabbed at that point. It was then that little Alyssa wandered downstairs and into a nightmare. At that point, he knew that he was going to be identified. And so he had to eliminate any witnesses, and he did. But the little girl put up a fight that Bazanowitz wasn't prepared for and struck a blow that put her killer behind bars. While the murder weapon has never been found, this killer left behind plenty of other evidence to tie him to the murder and put him in prison for the rest of his natural life. Even though the streets of Woburn are safe again, the people of this quiet town will never walk them with the same competence as before. And for Kelly Lorick, the murder of her best friend has left a permanent mark. I got a tattoo for her. It says innocence because there was an innocence lost when her life was taken, but I also feel like my innocence was taken when I had to grow up so quickly and have to deal with all that. For the folks of Woburn, Massachusetts, things have pretty much gone back to normal. Kids play in the street. Neighbors wave hello. But the murders of Joanne and Alyssa Presti will always be a reminder that danger can lurk around any corner. <laughs>